0: Welcome to Spiritual Naturalism Today, a conversation on science, nature, and spirituality. Our program is sponsored by the Spiritual Naturalist Society with host Daniel Strain. Hello and thank you for joining us today. My name is Daniel Strain and I'm here with my co hosts Jay Forrest and Lee Anderson. Hello Jay.
1: Hello, how are you doing?
0: Good. How are you doing?
1: Good. Thank you.
0: Uh, hello, Lee. Hi. <laughs> uh, thank you all for being with me on the program today, and thank you to our listeners for uh, tuning in. Um, where Our audience is continuing to grow, and people are giving us some positive feedback, and uh, we really appreciate it. Today, we're going to be talking about non-attachment. Um, we're going to talk about exactly what that means. Uh, especially in a spiritual naturalist context, and we're going to talk about how that compares with ideas of uh, acceptance versus action in the world. So uh, why don't we just go ahead and uh, jump right into it. Uh, Jay, did you have any initial thoughts?
1: Well, I think uh, whenever I think of people talking about non-attachment, I think the difficulty is I don't think people really – I mean, it's kind of a vague concept. Some people think of it it's like detachment. You're just, you know, dropping out of the world and, you know, disassociating yourself with everything, just, you know, kind of tuning out of everything. And I don't think that uh, that kind of concept is helpful. And distancing yourself and isolating yourself. I don't think is what's meant by non-attachment at least within the in the Buddhist context. So I think we need to differentiate between non-attachment and detached, being detached from a situation. I think that might be a good thing to 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 really yeah. distinguish.
0: Yeah, we were uh, actually talking about this the other day and uh the um on the surface it may seem like it's an equivalent translation non-attachment detachment but to me detachment sounds like an action like you have detached whereas non-attachment is kind of a state of being it's persistent and uh the points you made about it are even more relevant the um uh so you know we're gonna obviously intersect with buddhism a lot on this but uh as spiritual naturalists we we have maybe uh Uh, a diversity of views uh, regarding this, but all of these have to do with how these attachments kind of affect happiness. So um, Lee, what are your thoughts about becoming attached or clinging as they call it and that effect on happiness? What are your experiences with that or thoughts about it?
2: Well, coming from the non-Buddhist perspective, anytime that I've heard um, different definitions or perspectives on non-attachment I think what has stuck with me most is the concept of just trying to come at things from a compassionate perspective and that that's what non-attachment is not letting your own personal Uh, motives or emotions get into it but stepping back rather I kind of like non-attachment as stepping back and then coming at a given situation or something from a compassionate perspective so from the non-Buddhist perspective that was the definition that I liked the most and and that's the way I think of non-attachment
0: yeah that's interesting um especially the part that when you talked about uh, infusing compassion back into, you know, taking that step back so that we can make sure that compassion is in there. I really liked that a lot. Um, To me, compassion is one of the things that drew me to Buddhism, but it's also uh, some personal life experiences uh, as I was getting into a number of different philosophies Uh, really convinced me of the power of compassion. And this is coming from somebody who um, I grew up kind of being analytical and I would want to know, okay, what's the ethical model and why is this ethical and that not ethical and how a person should act and rationality and all this stuff. And uh, when you get into really complex situations, um, there's quite often times where you have to fall back on Uh, more of a virtue-based way of approaching things. You have to fall back on just trying to be a compassionate person rather than trying to uh, calculate out all of the uh, particular courses of action that you think are going to lead to this or that result.
1: Yeah, it's kind of the difference between, Ethics based on rules and ethics based on something within you, you know, that virtue idea, the, the inner qualities. And that's, the I think, an important aspect that Leigh pointed out is that the real difference between non-attachment and detachment is in non-attachment, compassion isn't eliminated. Detachment requires you to completely disassociate and disconnect. And I think that the the compassion is the element that keeps you in the midst of the suffering of the world, the suffering of your friends and family and and people that, you know, that keeps you connected, but not attached. I always like the the, because one of the articles I I wrote was the difference between non-attachment and love. How can you be not attached and love? Because we think of love as attachment. You know where where I always thought that the the best illustration I ever heard was there's two ways to pray when you're praying or or, or uh, folding your hands you can put the hands uh, where they're connecting they're straight you know the usual Buddhist pose where the hands are are touching but they're not interlaced and then the the praying where the the fingers are inter interlaced you know like uh, you know, they're interconnected. You can't pull them apart. And for mm-hmm. me, mm-hmm. when the hands are touching each other in the the regular, you know, prayer pose thing, the prayer hands, and they're just, you know, the faces are touching each other, you can pull away. There's, there's nothing stopping free flowing of. So that's connection. And connection and non-attachment can go together. But when you fold them in and the hand, the fingers are interlaced, you can't pull away, and that's attachment.
0: Mm, that's interesting. That's really mm-hmm. interesting. I like that. In fact, it's kind of neat because it 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 uh, you know kind of allegorically connects to the eastern western styles of doing the hands. That's a that's really a neat a neat concept.
1: And the other thing, when you think about it. You know when they are interlaced, not only is the other person bound to you, but you're bound to them. So you actually give up your freedom when you're attached. Mm-hmm. We always think of attachment, you know being a bad thing as far as us, but it's also a bad thing for the other person. It doesn't give them the freedom to be who they are. And so so many times we want to control people and control situations. And we can't. I mean, realistically, that's one of the teachings of the Stoics, is you need to be realistic on what you really do have control over. And one of the things we do have control over is the idea of non-attachment, where we can be connected with somebody, we can have an intimate relationship, but we're not trying to control them and they're not trying to control us. It's a mutual, beneficial, sharing together, compassionate relationship. And that's the healthiest relationship. To me, there's three stages of emotional development. First, you have the I, me, my, the, the selfishness, the right. complete dependence. You know, you are here to serve me, and that's what we grow up as kids. We're dependent upon our parents, and that's fine. That's, that's part of, of, of growing. But then you learn independence, where you kind of go your separate ways, do your own thing. And then you get to, to the point of real maturity, which is interdependence, where you could have that connection with other people, but you let them have their independence as well. It's kind of a combination between dependence, that means you have the connection, but independence means you don't try to control. Yeah.
0: Yeah, it's that whole thing about, like, um, is the love um, selfish, self-based? Is, are right. you trying to love because you're trying to fulfill some need of yours and that's the primary concern or are you being a loving being um, i heard somebody say once that you know if you're trying to be a compassionate being a loving being then it's not that they love this person and don't love this person or they love that and don't like that it's not about deciding who gets to be the beneficiary of of your love and who doesn't it's when you're with a tree, you love trees. When you're with a squirrel, you love the squirrel. When you're with another person, you love the other person because you simply love. It's not about the, you know, it's about the nature of what who, you, who you're who you trying to be, what kind of person you're trying to become. Yeah. Um, I really, uh, one of the things I mentioned uh, uh, to Jay and Lee before our program is that I'd done a uh, – Presentation at a uh, local Buddhist temple that my wife and I go to this past week on uh, impermanence, and uh, there's a kind of a lot of overlap here between the concepts of impermanence and non attachment because accepting impermanence is part of that. But whenever you start to accept things, like Jay said, the accepting the uh, what you can control and what you can't, and we start talking about acceptance and People get confused by that too, because oh, yeah. um, they start to think that uh, acceptance means letting things happen without acting, or, or letting somebody walk all over you, or not not doing what you need to do to, you know, according to uh, virtue and duty and what's right. Uh, not calling the police if they need to be called. Not taking action. And acceptance in these kind of ways is referring to inner peace. And so it's possible for a person to do everything they need to do, uh, but their motivation is not what most of the world usually thinks of as motivation. They think, oh well, if there's some injustice, we gotta get angry. And if we get angry, that'll be our fuel for action. Or we gotta get mad or we gotta, you know, whatever. But these are just different forms of greed. And attachment. And so if you take all that away, though, and you say, oh, well, I'm going to learn how to, you know, have this inner peace, this acceptance, what then becomes the basis for action? And that goes back to what you said, Lee. Um, You've got to replace hate, anger, reactionary uh, things like that and greed. You have to replace it with something to be the motivation for action, and that's where compassion becomes so important, because that then is the motivation. Um,
2: I and think that, currently, we're, the state that we're all in is such that we have all kinds of technology and things coming at us immediately, And I heard this past week something that made me stop and think. People don't know how to be bored anymore. And a lot of things in the past, a lot of creative things, you know, writers, artists and things came out of boredom. But these days we tend to react immediately because if we have one second that we're waiting in a line at the grocery store and nothing's happening, we pull out our phone and we start reading on it or we start using social media and things like that mm-hmm. and uh, to me the concept of non-attachment with action is again that whole stepping back and stop before you take action and get into the right mode so like you said people react you know immediately with anger or you know they're uh, upset about things and they go in and take actions that don't come from that perspective of compassion. And it all comes from the fact that we think we need, need to react immediately. And I don't believe we do.
1: Mm. Yeah. I think the, the reacting is one of the difficulties instead of acting many times we react. And when we do And when we do that, unfortunately, what happens in reaction is things come out that we didn't mean. We didn't mean to say that. We didn't mean to do that. We didn't really think out the consequences of saying or doing that. And then, you know, we have to learn to say, okay. And that's why I like the idea of wisdom and compassion. Sometimes we just want to go and help, and sometimes we make it actually worse because we haven't thought about the wisdom of helping, and we end up empowering a situation that we should not empower. But the the thing that you brought up, which I I think is really a symptom of our time, is this attachment to constant stimulation through social media and texting and and the internet and everything like that. You're podcasts right. Podcasts and- yeah, <laughs> <laughs> except for really good podcasts. Um, yeah. <laughs> But it is a difficulty because you don't have any time to think. It's always input 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 when when is the time that you contemplate? when is the time that you reflect on on the things in your life? When is the time that you just get a just just get away go outside you know sit under a tree, go for a walk by a stream, and just think about how your life is going, the choices that you're making you know. This is where the wisdom comes from. It comes from science or, or so, silence and solitude, and we don't and have you know, that anymore. Uh,
0: sometimes just uh, not even thinking, just sitting and being, and trying to become, trying to get outside of the the thought trap of just everything being words and logical arguments and conditions, and and trying to just listen, see, experience. Be in a very raw form
1: just be there you know instead Mm -hmm. of always having to produce we're in a production oriented society where we either doing one or two things we're either consuming or we're producing for someone else's consumption and that keeps our mind constantly in a whirl. and it comes back to that old metaphor the best way to clear up water is to let it settle to let it rest to let it just be without stirring it. And that's the same with the mind. You know, a lot mm-hmm. of people want to sit down, they want to meditate, they want inner peace, and they want it now. <laughs> that's not yeah. how it works. You know? And it, it
0: takes patience and it, it takes um, uh, diligence too to see results of meditation over time. Yeah. Um, but, and you know, a lot of people have a, a real problem. This, this, this thing about media has created uh, a lot of extreme mental habits that people get and they get to where they can't sit alone with themselves. And uh, I remember seeing some kind of, I don't really have the reference for it offhand, but uh, something where people would begin to give themselves shocks rather than sit there quietly. Oh, yeah. Some kind of experiment.
1: Yeah, it was an you experiment. Know? Yeah, it was an experiment. What they did is they wanted to see um, just how much we cannot be alone with ourselves. And the experiment, and it was at a university is what it was. And what they did is they actually had ability to shock themselves or they just had to sit there. And the longer the period, the more people would just something for some stimulus, some something, give me something. Mm-hmm. because we're we're scared of of the inner silence the the void within us the, the the deeper questions they're uncomfortable and we'd rather you know stimulate ourselves with pain than to actually face some of the uh the questions within ourselves
0: so lee you you uh live uh out in a very uh beautiful area and You've talked about that before, uh, being out there, being in nature and uh, uh, walking around your property and everything. And uh, I imagine that gives you a lot of ample opportunity to
2: to just be. It does if I take it. And again, yeah. at times, I can become so caught up in the same thing, even with family and with Friends and with volunteering and things like that, that I'll find myself thinking, "Ooh, I haven't walked outside in three days, even though it's been sunny and you know nice weather and everything." And so it, it's it is one of those things that you need to make a priority. It does not come naturally, you know. We just in this day and age have to work at it.
0: You know, that's a great point because one of the things that um, that i see that we're doing here in the society you know we publish uh four articles a month and then we put out this podcast one a month and then um any number of other various projects and posts and things that we're doing and communications and stuff and uh it's a lot going on and people read these things and uh, i'm very proud of our writers uh they do wonderful job they have excellent articles um i think they've been very helpful to people but i wonder sometimes you know how what percentage of people and i imagine it's a large chunk are interested in spiritual naturalism they're interested in these practices and they they're in their busy life and they're doing their stuff and they're going through their media and they're checking their facebook and they see the article and they think oh that article looks really neat It's about spirituality or this spiritual practice and they get it and they read it and then they kind of go on and do other things they read something else and they end up reading a lot of things but at some point where the rubber meets the road if you're going to benefit from this stuff it's got to affect some part of your schedule. You know, you've got to, like you said, make the time. There's got to be a thing where you put on your calendar, on your schedule, three o'clock, I am going to go sit with a tree, or I'm going to meditate, or I'm going to whatever, you know. There has to be some outward action so that if a Martian was watching you with a scanner, something different is happening, you know.
1: Which leads me to the obvious question, what do you do, Daniel, to do that
0: <laughs> yeah that's a that's a good question so i um, I know
1: how busy you are you've got business, you've got yes. the society, you've got friendships and everything else going how how do you make okay. the time to do that because honestly, I mean you know you know I write for the society and I'm on the podcast and stuff, mm-hmm. but it's still a struggle for me and and I've limited a lot of what I do uh, just so that I do have time for that.
0: Yeah, it is a, a lot of time. There's um, there's a list, you know, at least a page long of things that I have not yet gotten to that I'm supposed to have done this week. And uh, that's just S&S stuff. I'm not even talking about my day job and my family life and all that kind of stuff and uh, time for, you know, just uh, recreational Activities and things like that. It's very, very, I end up being uh, really busy and um, I'm kind of right on the edge. I'm like, where I'm like, sometimes I notice I'm like, whoa, this is getting a little out of hand. I need to take some time. I need to look at my schedule. I need to shift some things out. Uh, so there's certainly like a, a schedule management kind of thing that I have to do and I have to be very careful and watch myself. Uh, because I have always had a tendency to t- put too much on my plate. And um, what ha- what helps me generally uh, is um, making time for meditation. That's a biggie, biggie, biggie. Days that I meditate are much better than days that I don't. Um, if I just take that time to meditate, um, we have a little room under – I've mentioned it before. Uh, we have a little – harry potter like room under our stairs and we turned it into a little meditation chamber kind of thing we put up stuff in there and everything and, uh you can go and uh, go in there close the door and do a little meditation triangle <laughs> and um it's lovely i like it a lot but i have to actually make time to get in it and do my meditation uh the other day I, I was kind of at one of those points where I was like, uh, yeah, the gap has gotten too small here. So I just, fortunately it was a real pretty day outside. It was good weather. And I, I went out and I took my shoes off so I could feel the grass and left my phone inside <laughs> and, uh, just went and sat and took some time and, um, also taking time for reading. One of the things that's hard for me is that, um, uh, all of the work we do with the Spiritual Naturalist Society is about spiritual practice, but I have to constantly remind myself that that stuff I'm doing for the society is not my practice time. You know, I have to make right. a separate time for that. It's it's more like logistical, organizational type
1: stuff, you know, so Right. Lee, how about yourself?
2: But, you know, as we've been having this conversation and specifically talking about non-attachment with action, I've been thinking about, you know, my, my practice is that I do get up in the morning and almost without fail, I start my day, you know, with meditation. But meditation itself is not problem-solving activity and where I'm thinking about non-attachment with action what I'm missing out on are those walks out in nature where I can do the stepping back and think about a problem and how can I solve that problem in a compassionate manner so I need to actually add into my schedule Things like that specifically to solve issues and things that may come up from that type of perspective. I've gotten a lot out of the conversation already.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, good, because I, I think what you, you brought up is a good thing. It's really, you know, a lot of the even what Daniel was saying, a lot of what we do is we we're so busy doing that we don't have time to think of. Wait a second, what am I doing? What are my priorities? Am I getting in the time I need? You know, and sometimes it doesn't. So, some people it doesn't need to be. Uh, you know, the formal meditation where you sit down and you you meditate for half an hour. Sometimes it is that walk in nature where the artificial is just it's it's gone and you're you're in the natural environment. You're feeling the breeze, and it relaxes you, and you come, you, you you actually center yourself just doing that. That's one of the things that, um, as a family, we try to do. Is we have a bosque here in Albuquerque, and it's the wooded area right by the Rio Grande, and just to go out there, it just refreshes. It kind of readjusts your 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 mindset, and you just come back to, wait a second. All these other things really aren't as important as they feel. We get so wrapped up in the mind world that mm-hmm. we forget to come back to the natural world. And for me, I think the biggest insight that I got um, at least within the last couple of years is to listen to your body mm. i you know a lot of times you sit, you sit down to meditate and you you just don't listen. your body's a lot wiser than 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 you might realize. And I realize now when I, when I begin meditation, the first thing I do is check in with my body, find out where the tension is. And sometimes that tension will actually key you into what's bothering you. It's, it's to me, it's an amazing thing. The, the, the ability of the body to communicate to you if you're able to listen to it. It's, it's hard at first because mm. some of us are so tense. We're so tight that we don't even realize we are. And so one of the things that was suggested is you tighten up everything and then relax it Hmm. because you actually, you know, bring it for full tension. And then when you relax, you realize, oh, wait, (laughs) I guess (laughs) I wasn't as relaxed as I thought.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's a great point. I I like to start with a uh, like a body scan where you imagine this. Like a light laser line around your, your head and it moves down over your body. And as it moves down you relax and release those muscles. Um and what I find is that this the muscles between my eyebrows, I don't even realize that I've been doing this, you know, scrunching it like, you know, and my eyebrows are tight together and there's a little and then I release my brow and I realize that's what's there's that tells me I've got a lot of tension there. You know, listening to your body, you can also listen to your mind. I I was mentioned before, before we when we were talking about meditation. Um, there's a lot of different Buddhist words for these different kinds of meditation, but um, I like to think of it in you know kind of three general categories. You've got meditation, contemplation, and introspection. And so, like with meditation. Uh, or mindfulness meditation on the breath, that's a diff. that's, these are three different techniques, and, but they all kind of, like, interplay with each other, like, strengthen one another, like, um, with mindfulness meditation, you, you're focusing on either the breath or some other kind of constant thing, and, As your attention inevitably wanders off from it, as you think of things, you bring the attention back and you keep bringing it back, bringing it back, bringing it back. And that trains you to be able to turn your attention where you want it to be, when you want it to be uh, with more and more control and still the rest of the mind. And um, that's really helpful for when you were talking to Lee earlier about uh, stepping back. Taking a moment, not getting caught up in something and reacting right away. Well, if you're real trained with your your focus like that from your meditation, it will actually have that applicability when it comes to action, you know, later on. And so that's the one kind. The other kind, the introspection, is kind of where you you allow the things to rise and you simply watch them. And so it's kind of like noticing. What your body's telling you, but you're noticing what your mind's telling you, because those things that come up will tell you what's on your mind will tell you what's occupying your your subconscious, you'll start to learn about yourself and you learn about what's on your mind. And then the third one, the the contemplation is a more directed thing, but instead of instead of letting loose, but it, instead of directing on just a thing like the breath, it's directing on a specific problem or puzzle and you're methodically working through that like a logical argument trying to figure out something but all of those different varieties of meditation they all you know help one another help you get better at the other kind but then more importantly they all help with real life applicable things out in the world
2: and I think that's what I'm missing is the contemplative meditation, the walking meditation.
1: Hmm. Yeah. yeah. I was, yeah. was going to say, the. I always like to think of the difference between direct vision and peripheral vision when we think of meditation. There's the direct vision where you actually direct your attention to like the breath, <laughs> the body, things like that. And then there's the peripheral meditation where you just kind of you just like I remember the story. I forget which dad, um, it was a vipassana teacher who said, "It's like you sit in a room, you sit in the chair, and you just observe and see who comes into the room. <laughs> just observe, see who's who's visiting you. You know, what are the thoughts that are coming in? The the emotions that you're feeling." Even the noises and and just be, it's an open awareness is is what Mm. what it's called. An open awareness and just be the observer. And you can find out fascinating things about yourself and about your mind by just becoming an observer. Now, of course, you have to have some level of concentration to get to the point where you can do that without being carried away. Because Mm. it's very easy. You're sitting in the room watching things come in and out, and in comes the, oh, you need to make sure you pick up this at the store, and then all of a sudden. Pretty soon
0: you're swept (laughs) away with
1: it. Yeah. So that's what makes it hard is getting to the point where you can just be the observer and not engage the thought. Let the thought come. Let the thought go. It's kind of like a bird flying over your head. You can't control it, but just observe it. But don't let it build a nest in your hair. You know, that's 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 the, the balance of those things is to observe it, to let it be, let it come. And you'll see thoughts arise. They just last for a little while and then they dissipate. They, they go away. And that's how the, the mind works. It just it's a complete ingress, digress of thoughts just flowing in and out. And to become the observer of that is, is fascinating. It's almost like watching the ocean and the tides come in and out. It's it's an amazing experience and an insightful one because you'll begin to see a recurring thought. And you'll be like, hmm, I guess I was more troubled about this than I thought because it keeps coming back. Because it has a, an attraction to something that you're holding on to. And that's when we get into the, the non-attachment. The thing is, people... When they talk about non-attachment, they say, well, that's, you know, a wonderful theory. How do you do it? Well, let go. Well, that's, again, that's a nice theory. The -hmm. problem with being able to let go of your attachments is first to see the attachments. Because honestly, we're attached to many things. Even, you know, after... A decade of uh, Buddhist meditation, I still find myself attached to things and going, well, why, would I, why didn't I see that before? So I think the first step in non-attachment, the very, very, very first step is getting a perspective, getting the sight to see the attachment. Then the second thing is to find out what, why is it attached? What is it that you're trying to hold on to? You know, it's kind of like gripping something. You know, it's hard to be non-attached when you're grabbing onto something so tightly. And just releasing that item in your hand is like non-attachment. It's a very difficult thing because it's a, a, a mental process and not a physical one. And many times we don't see that it's not just one thing we're attached to. There might be multiple strands that we're attached to that particular thing or that particular outcome or something that we want to take place in the world that we just you know in our lives that just we we won't won't let go because we have to control it so the idea of non-attachment and control go together because you can't be non-attached in that which you're trying to control
0: yeah and and when you're doing the this kind of meditations where you're watching your thoughts what you're doing is you're practicing uh viewing yourself you're practicing uh, being aware so that those thoughts, you're not associating them anymore. And that gap between your the thoughts you're having and the impulses you're having in you start to become more and more apparent to you over time. Right. So that the urge doesn't necessarily – even things as innocuous as like learning how to sit without itching or readjusting every few minutes. Just something like that starts to teach you the separation between you and these requests coming into your brain all the time for your attention and your action.
1: Yeah, and that's usually my suggestion when I'm, I'm guiding people on meditation and this whole thing is start small. It's easier to see the small stuff. Like when you're sitting in a meditation and you've got the incredible itch. It's like the worst itch, you're going to die of this itch. That's the point that you begin to learn non-attachment. Letting it be, letting, letting yourself realize this will increase, then it will decrease, and then it will go away. That whole process in itself is actually teaching you the, the mental, giving you the mental muscle to let go of things and, and the skill to let go and it really is a skill. It's a skill that we're not born with. We're born in a society that has multiple attachments and addictions. And and to learn to just, in something as small as an itch, just to let it go. Just to let it be. Let it have its, you know, sensation. Watch the sensation. Pay attention to the sensation. And then just watch it disappear. And that's how you deal with other Larger attachments is you just let it be, let it be there. Because one of the things our first response to anything is try to push it away, try to change the reality. And we can change it by trying to pull things towards us or push things away. Well, pulling us, pulling things towards us is attachment, and pushing things away is the whole idea of um, aversion. And the problem is we try to take reality and we push and pull on it all the time and we're never just with it, just accept it as it is and then work with what is rather than the illusions that we create about it. And that's what changes everything is you're actually working with reality as it is rather than how you conceive it or how you'd like it to be or your aspirations or your fears. You're actually with reality as it is, and that is the key to non not attachment and change it's it's that idea of action action from the point of seeing reality as it is is completely different than action out of your needs and your your biases and your prejudice and your your fears your aspirations it's a completely different perspective
0: and people think that uh that that's what's needed to do the right thing or to act. But often that, that kind of motivation will simply make your actions unbalanced and erratic and less precise. And
1: yeah, because you're, you're fighting an illusion, a mind created illusion. You're fighting something that doesn't exist. You're trying to change what isn't there in a way that doesn't work. (laughs) That's why we get stuck in the circle is we create the problem, and then we solve the problem and create the problem by solving the problem. Because we're not getting to the problem. Yeah. The problem isn't reality. It's the way that we deal with reality. It's the way we look at reality. One of the very first of the the Eightfold Noble Path is right view. That's the mm-hmm. beginning because if you don't have the right view, if you're not willing to see reality as it is, you're going to be continuing messing around with things that don't matter, that aren't there, that are illusions of the mind delusions
0: or we we attach to things that as though they were impermanent even though they're permanent i mean as though they were permanent even though they're impermanent and uh if we appreciated them as impermanent and we constantly had that in mind we shift our perspective over time through these practices so that we naturally react to the world as it is as as the reality truly is rather than having to remind ourselves of it Constantly, um, that's when it starts to change the emotional reactions that come up.
1: Right, right. That's that's yeah. It that goes right into the whole idea of we think that this is permanent. You know, if you have a headache, you think the headache's going to last forever. It's never going to go away. Mm-hmm. And, and the the reality is reality is in a flux. The only thing that doesn't change is change. Change will constantly happen. That's part of the nature of reality, which means relationships will end, new ones will begin, people will die, people will be born. Things change. Nothing is permanent. And when we realize that nothing is permanent, then we're not trying to make it what it's not, which is permanent. We're trying to make things. We're trying to freeze everything in concrete because we like it just like this. Stop this moment. Well, reality doesn't work this. It doesn't stop. It continues to change. And that's yep. part of accepting. You know, the the, the the one side of it is non-attachment, the other side of that is acceptance. That means I accept what is as it is. Now, how do I cope with that? How do I deal with that? How do I relate to that wisely in a way that actually makes a difference? Or if I can't make a difference just let go. It's, it's going to be the way it is. You know, it is what it is and me fighting about it, frustrating about it, yelling at somebody about it, or that's not going to change it. So why waste the energy in that when I could put it on something more productive?
0: Yeah. Coping with it is, uh, actually, um, I should mention there's an article out, uh, this month on our website. Um, it's an article I wrote about coping with impermanence and, uh, Um, there's a lot of overlap, like I said before, between this issue of impermanence and the issue of non-attachment. Because that's why we attach, because we we imagine, we forget impermanence. We forget the truth of impermanence. Exactly. And, of course, that attachment, when the impermanence uh, inevitably takes place, lost job, lost relationships, what have you, Um, that ripping away of what you're attached to, that's the source of suffering. Yep. But, you know, the reason I suggested that our topic be not just non-attachment, but non-attachment in action is because so often I hear the this, uh, the misunderstanding that um, these philosophies that teach equanimity and and peace and acceptance and and that sort of thing. They get misinterpreted as meaning passivity, outward passivity, external passivity. Correct. And uh, that's, that's a misinterpretation.
1: Yeah, and that's, I think, probably the most common when you, you talk about uh, non-attachment. I think that's a common idea. Whether it's, you know, non-attachment in love or non-attachment in action, the the key here is understanding that non-attachment is just giving you a perspective on the changeable parts and the non-changeable parts. That which you have an influence over and that which you don't. Back to the Stoics. That's really what it is. It's it's it is. You're getting a wise mind of the situation. That's what non-attachment gives you. Now you can change something with wisdom or accept it because in wisdom you know that it's not changeable. So it's not that it's contrary to action in fact it should be the basis of action and back to what lee said earlier it's not just non-attachment it's not just acceptance it's also compassion giving you the motivation giving you the the fire for it not i mean it, a fire has two parts it has light and heat non-attachment will give you the light compassion will give you the heat yeah
0: Um, Lee, I'm sure you meant before when you were talking about compassion, I'm I'm sure you meant to include self-compassion in that, didn't you? Uh,
2: Yes, most definitely.
0: Yeah, I think that's important. uh, I like to phrase it like, um, uh, I I love the phrase compassion for all beings, not compassion for others, because in Buddhism, there are no others. There's the separation between self and others is, delu- is delusional, um, but compassion for all beings. And well, I'm a being, so having compassion for yourself, I think is uh, is a good you know, core to that. That's usually easier for people to start with and then they try to radiate it outwards. Uh,
2: well, I think we're also harder on ourselves than anyone else is anyway. So that is a good place to start.
0: Yeah, you know what I find interesting are examples of that where um, someone will be leading kind of a self-destructive life, and then they they have a child, and then they start shaping up because they're trying to make a life for the child. And it's like it was easier for them to love this other being than it was for them to love themselves um, and that's often even harder for people to, you know, like you said. Well,
1: that actually would be a good topic for a whole podcast is self-compassion.
0: Uh, yeah.
1: Cause it's, it's, well, a, it's a big topic.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, I agree. It, we'll add it to our, uh, we have a running list of uh, topic ideas that we work on and try to keep for, for everybody. So, um guys, it looks like we're getting pretty close to our end time. Uh any other closing thoughts?
1: Lee?
2: I think we've covered everything. Um I really enjoyed uh listening to Jay's conversation on um how he what he teaches others uh as far as non attachment means.
1: Mm. Yeah, it's one of those topics that's just it's it's such an important teaching, but it really doesn't have much depth if you don't actually have a practical world real, real world application. When you can see, "Oh, I see how this works in this situation." Oh, I, mm-hmm. then it becomes well, actually, it's kind of an important con- it's a important con- <laughs> concept and an important practice to do, and it's an ongoing practice because unless you're a completely enlightened being, if such a being exists, you're going to have attachments. That's part of being human. It's part of being in in the real world. The key is to to work with those attachments that are hurting you the most. <laughs> The ones mm-hmm. that are causing the most damage to you or to your friends and family, those are the ones to work on the most. And to to get free of those. There's other attachments, you know, to chocolate or whatever that's, you know, mm-hmm. usually isn't, you know, a world-shaking, you know, uh, life-destroying thing. So work on the attachments that are doing the most damage in your life. Get to the point where you're seeing what the attachment is. What's connecting you to that particular thing or or person and then beginning to let go of those those areas. And you'll find a a growing freedom, a ability to move that you didn't feel before. And that little wiggle room will continue to grow as the non-attachment grows as you begin to get better insights into why the attachment was there. What were you trying to change? What were you trying to make permanent that was impermanent? You know, what were you not letting go? And and that's how you grow in into the whole field of non attachment. Because I don't it's not a, it's not something you sit down, meditate, and you got it.
3: Right. It's it's like, you know, I noticed that like a lot of these uh teachings that we talk about can very easily sound like very superficial uh euphemisms or internet memes or something like that, you know, the, the sunset with a nice little phrase or whatever. And um, it's very easy to, to mistake that, but it's more like when you start putting it into real practices of self-development over time. It's, it becomes more like an onion, where each time you read these things, you realize that they had a deeper meaning than what you thought they had, and you kind of unravel it and unravel it, go deeper and deeper. And um, as that, as you start to see those changes in yourself, you start to see how it affects your life. Exactly. Well, um, I want to thank everybody for listening and joining us today. Uh, thank you, Lee, for joining us. Thank you. Thank you, Jay. All right. Appreciate it. And uh, I'm going to put my hands together in uh, appreciative uh, (laughs) palm to palm and say uh, thank you and namaste. And uh, uh, please join us next month for our next issue. And feel free to take a look at our past issues on our website. And uh, we'll see everybody next time.
0: This program was sponsored by the Spiritual Naturalist Society. Learn more and become a member at SpiritualNaturalistSociety.org.
1: Our music was composed by John Clemiss Jay Forrest is our technical director. Please share our program and join us next time on Spiritual Naturalism Today.